an ice cream shop, there are several important decisions you've got to make right there and then. And the obvious one is there are going to be loads of different flavors, and you have to limit yourself to however many scoops you can handle, at least at that time. The other essential decision, though, is whether you want your ice cream in a cup or or in a cone. Now, Now, both are good, but there are a couple of factors involved. So, to make this, you know, open confession, I'm a a cup man myself. But sometimes, if if you're on the move, I've I've got to be going somewhere, I'm in a rush, I can't sit down with it, it's kind of just easier for expediency's sake to go for a cone. Now, the reason is, although the cup is great in my actual preference, personally, sometimes expediency requires the cone to make it easier on myself to get done what I need to get done on the go. And my point is that Paul raised a similar issue regarding marriage in between Christ's first and and second comings. Getting married or remaining single are both good options and that neither is sinful, but our age of waiting for the Lord's return, particularly in situations that, that are especially difficult, well, in those times expediency can suggest that the wisest option for some would be to remain single. So as we've looked through chapter 7 in, in previous weeks, Paul has answered questions that the Corinthians had sent to, to him about marriage and, and its goodness. They had questioned that fundamentally. They had imbibed an ascetic mindset, which means that they looked down upon the good things of life that relate to our physical existence and, and our enjoyment of the created world. They, they wanted even, as they took part in this mindset, to, to dissolve their marriages that existed and to abstain uh, from the physical benefits of the relationship even if they were already married. And the thing is that Paul, in some ways, let's underline that in bold, hear me clear, Paul, in some ways, agreed with their position that celibacy might be best, but thoroughly disagreed with their reasons and their approach. He did not like their ascetic mindset that led them there. Uh, And he disagreed with the notion that they would end existing marriages or totally of all future ones if it was overly difficult to to avoid marriages in order to attain that goal of celibacy. So so in chapter 7's last section here this evening, Paul addressed those who had not yet married and how they should think about the wisdom involved in getting married. So the main point is that both marriage and singleness are good, but singleness can free your attention for devotion to the Lord. Both marriage and singleness are good, but singleness can free your attention for devotion to the Lord. We're going to consider this in three points. The directions, the distress, 
and the day of Christ. First, the directions. Now, there's a lot of material in this text, and so what I'm going to try to do here is summarize, I hope helpfully, the main contours of this section of Scripture. This this point then establishes the what instructions, what directions Paul gave here. And the, the overarching point is that they should be content in whatever situation in which they find themselves because marriage and singleness are both good and have benefits as we strive to serve God. This pointedly means that we have to have wisdom and we cannot dictate exactly what is best and what must be done in regards to marrying or remaining single in individual cases. We have to use wisdom. Verse 25 stated this really clearly. Let's turn to your Bibles with me. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So if, if we remember when we thought about verse 10, right, or you can flip up there uh, briefly, Jesus personal, we see that Paul talked about how Jesus personally addressed some aspects of marriage during his earthly ministry. And the apostles were then able to repeat that teaching, whether in their writings, as in verse 10 and the few verses following, or in their in-person ministry. But then we also see from verse 12 that Christ did not speak directly about every issue during his earthly ministry. And so the Spirit inspires new material to help us think about those issues which Christ did not take on. So in verse 25 then, we we see that continue. And and Paul conceded two things that Jesus did not speak about, the issue of verses 25 to 40, and also that the Spirit has inspired wise judgment here, but not a command. So Paul is saying, He doesn't have direct material from Christ, but he he does have material from the Spirit. But this is not a command. This is wise, Spirit-inspired advice. And as we turn to to think about what this is, the the question of who these betrothed people of of verses 25 and 36 especially is is a big issue. So the Greek literally translates virgins, which could mean a scope of things. And it seems best, though, to, to take this whole passage about being, or about being, sorry, being about the same group, which we see, especially from verse 36, that in the Greek, at least, that these are young women who were engaged to be married. So the betrothed are young women yet to be married, but who are engaged. Now, notice, so before we start thinking, well, that applies to a very narrow group of people, notice that this section is concerning the betrothed. 
the, the young engaged women, not to them, which means that this passage actually addresses everybody, it addresses everybody else too. Now likely the, the Corinthians who had devalued the, the marital relationships were pressuring young engaged couples to cancel their weddings. You see how that line of reasoning goes. They, they had decided that marriage and the physical benefits of it are, are bad altogether. So then we should try to get everybody who hasn't married yet, but who's engaged, not to get married. Before, though, we think that this applies only to engaged people, which would narrow the application here. I, I would add that Paul's wisdom about singleness here applies all the more to those who are not even engaged yet. So before we think, well, I'm not engaged, so that this doesn't apply. If you're, if you're not married, if you're not engaged yet either, well, this, this wisdom is all the more for you. So Paul's position in these verses throughout them is that there's nothing wrong if you want to get married. But you need to know that marriage adds pressures to your life from which you could be free if you would remain single. These added pressures are are particularly heavy, as verse 26 highlights, in view of the present distress. Which then, right, the obvious question there is, what is this distress and was it something specific to the Corinthians? Or is it something that's that's very applicable and, and relevant to us today, too, in between the whole time until Christ returns? Now, I'm going to come back to that in the second point. And so we, before we take on what this distress is, let's demonstrate Paul's position that marriage is good, but wisdom suggests that singleness can be a a helpful path. So Paul said in in verses 27 and 28 that married people need to remain so. And that's been a a point he's repeated and hammered throughout this whole chapter. But then that unmarried people should remain so too. They shouldn't get married, but if they do marry, they don't sin. Now, then he, he works through some difficulties that can pertain to married life in verses 29 to 35, and we'll come back to that, and, and then repeated in verse 36 that an engaged man who feels that it would be poor conduct to, to cancel the wedding and, and he would then struggle in sexual purity, well, they are free to marry, and it seems that they should if he's engaged and he would struggle with being unmarried, he should go ahead with this wedding. If if this couple would not struggle, particularly as he names these issues of secu- sexual purity as, as singles, and notice, and they are firmly convinced in their hearts that unmarried life would be better for them, then they also have not sinned. And because of not not in an absolute sense, but because of those difficulties of verses 29 to 35, they even do better. 
So verse 39 then states that a, a woman should not simply end her marriage, but is free to remarry if her husband dies, even if Paul thought that she would just be happier as single. Right, so let's bring this together. In these verses, Paul affirmed that Christians are free to marry other Christians, right? He said, verse 39, only in the Lord. You can marry only in the Lord. But they are also free not to marry. And it may even be wise to remain single given the added pressures that come with married life. Verse 40 affirms, despite how some Corinthians thought that they had figured it all out and attained a higher spiritual status, Paul also actually had the Holy Spirit. The obvious edge there is that Paul, with it seems some bit of sarcasm, overrode whatever instructions these self-proclaimed spirituals had given. So the directions were to be content with their present circumstances and to use wisdom about their course courses of action. Which brings us to our, our second point to consider what is the distress. Right, and, and so the first point showed how Paul instructed that both marriage and singleness are good, and we need to be clear about that, and that Christians are, are free to be married and to remain single. Not divorce, but remain single. And yet, marriage adds some pressures to life. And, and this point, now we're going to transition to examine how to frame these pressures and consider how that relates to what was at least for the Corinthians a time of present distress. Right, so if you'll look at verses 29 to 31 and, and cast your attention there, because here is where Paul explained this present distress. And so we, we see, if you look in there at, at verse 29, that the appointed time has grown Short, And then in verse 31, the present form of this world is passing away. So what's going on here is this, this present distress relates to how our current time is fading away. Right, so let's talk a bit more into that. When Christ came, he shifted history so that Everything going on in the world is surging towards His return. That's the end of history now. Christ's second coming. We live in the moment between Christ's first and second comings. A a time of tension between God beginning and ending history's last events. Right, so... How can, how can we actually think about this? And especially, how can we think about it biblically, most important? So I want to think about Luke chapter 4. I'm going to read to you the important verses that are important for our present consideration. Uh, so in verses 18 and 19, Jesus reads 
from Isaiah 61, which was the text we previously read. It said, so Jesus is reading, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he ends reading. Now, if you were paying attention when we, when we read Isaiah 61 before, maybe you already noticed what's happened. Because in Isaiah 61, interestingly, that verse continues. The same prophecy continues, and the day of vengeance of our God. So Jesus cut short his reading and explanation of this prophecy because his first coming is different from his second. In in his first coming, Jesus proclaimed this day of liberty for the captives and, and he set them free. But when he comes again, he will come with vengeance. It will be the day of judgment. And so we see then that, that Jesus has begun to fulfill one unified prophecy He's begun to fulfill it, but he has not completed it. And we live when time has been pulled short in between the initiation of the end of things and its total completion. And that tension between the beginning of the end and the end of the end makes time short. And it gives Christians perspective on the age in which we live. We live as though our lives are not wrapped up in life's normal affairs because our real citizenship is in the coming age of the heavenly kingdom which has begun but is not yet completed. We should be clear. I think this is really important that Paul's description of here of how we should live is not entirely literal. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying let's think about this more broadly because we can't live both without rejoicing and without mourning. And to try to do that absolutely and entirely literally would contradict even Paul's own other writings. We we are supposed to have rejoicing and we, we are supposed to weep with those who weep. We certainly do not discard our families and nor can and do we abstain from buying and, and dealing in common society. But we do live as though those things are not our life's ultimate reference point. Being in Christ relocates your primary entity from depending on all aspects of your life in this world to being confirmed as God's children. 
And this change creates a difficulty about how we are to focus our lives here and now. Our relocation as citizens of heaven demands a heavenly focus. But this world's normal and, we should add, good responsibilities can divide our attention. The single person can decide with relative ease to move to the other side of the world. But families automatically, they're not necessarily prevented from that, but they automatically have other responsibilities that may prevent or at least complicate that decision. Now, an overseas move is is kind of an obvious but yet unusual example here. But I think that there are real day-to-day applications of the same principle. So, so if you consider verses 32 to 35, as they describe, marriage isn't forbidden, but it splits our focus from an undivided attention on God. Family life, Paul affirmed, is good. But it it adds responsibilities and and it requires a, a wider focus in our activities. We need to be concerned then about our family's needs, which, we should add, is what Paul meant by being anxious to please our husband, our wife. We're not supposed to be worried. We're not supposed to be consumed by this. But it means we are aware that we have to be concerned about our family's needs. Now, the remaining question then is whether this distress that Paul highlighted was specific to the Corinthians or exists still for us. Which which is really important, right? You can see that because that is what drove the advice to abstain from marriage. Given that the shortness of time, which was key in all this, is due to living between Christ's first and second comings, it, it seems that, at least in some sense, this advice still abides for us. Now, I say in some sense because there are certainly times when this present distress is much more intense and pointed in various times and places. It's likely the case, as it was for so many congregations to which Paul wrote, that things were particularly bad for Christians in Corinth. So, so their situation was likely especially hard, which intensified Paul's advice for them and the urgency to consider it really carefully. And still, this advice applies in principle as we wait for Christ's return. 
Things are difficult for Christians. And as we strive to serve the Lord, we need to consider whether marriage is genuinely going to be a help in that, or if it is deeply going to fragment our ability to serve the Lord with devotion. So the distress is difficulties caused by added responsibilities, which may weigh more heavily at certain times than others in various places across history. That brings to our final point, the day of Christ. Now, if, we, if we catch up to where we are, let's remind ourselves that the first point looked at Paul's directions, that we should be content in whatever life circumstance, whatever life situations and chances we have, and, and we should use wisdom about changing that if we seek to change it in a, in a lawful way. And the second point considered how our relationship to Christ that orientates us towards the end of history should be a significant consideration in if we marry and how times of particular difficulty for Christians should make us hesitant to assume the extra responsibilities of family life. But So then, having considered these two primary major aspects of, of this text, then we need to think about, in this point, how we can apply it. And first we should think about how this passage shows us that marriage is about far more than just making yourself happy. Have you thought about that? Did you, did you, did that click? That this marriage entails taking on more responsibilities that do indeed take a toll on your capacity for other things. That doesn't dilute or take away from how wonderful marriage is. But it does mean that if you are pursuing marriage, then you need to make sure that you examine your heart about why you're going into it. Because you think, if you think that person will make you happy, and that's the reason why you're going into marriage, that's a problem. Or, on the other hand, are you trying to get married because you have found someone for whom you want to make yourself responsible to care for their needs. And you see the difference, don't you? I'm going in this, into this to make myself happy. I'm going into this to care for them. And this is worth it for my devotion to the Lord. And I, I know right here in, in this juncture that it can be challenging for singles to seek contentment in their singleness. But that actually reveals one of the issues at stake here. Because if if we seek marriage for our own contentment, to make us content, then we will be looking for contentment in that other person. 
we will be placing our hopes for contentment in them. Which, first, will misplace our basis of of satisfaction. And second, is contrary to Paul's concerns here. The, The Bible describes your role in marriage as loving someone more than insisting upon your own ways, which you will not do if you expect that your spouse is there just to make you content. You will worry more about how they satisfy you than you will about fulfilling your duties to love them well. Which raises, I mean, that that broadens the scope of application right here and includes questions for married and single people, doesn't it? If, If you're already married, are you looking at your husband or wife for your contentment? Are you making them the basis of your hope? Are you expecting them to satisfy all your deepest desires. If you're single, are you thinking that if I could just find that person, that'll make it all better? Because that is not what will make it all better. So, in one sense, we can... For those who want to marry, we can think about how our singleness tests our readiness for marriage. If you cannot find contentment while you are single, you won't find it just because you get married. Singleness actually further facilitates strengthening our devotion to Christ. We don't have as many added pressures and responsibilities that can fragment our thinking. Single Christians should use that time to build strong habits of of walking with Christ before jumping into marriage because the tumults and stresses of family life rarely permit the luxury and ordinary circumstances of Christians marrying one another of easily building those habits from scratch. Don't think that my Christian life will just snap together if I get married. So then, whether whether you're single or married, we have to examine ourselves about where we look for our contentment and satisfaction. We have to look entirely to Christ for that. At the end of the day, this world is catapulting towards its finale. When Christ will come back for His people, at the day of Christ, will you appear before God's throne as the bride of Christ? Or as those who long for 
more things of this world. We appear as Christ's bride if we place our faith in Him to be our Savior. Jesus' death certainly paid the penalty for our sins, but it was also His victory over the grave and powers of this age. Those things are already defeated in the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior, our Christ, in whom we find real contentment. The only one who will never disappoint and will truly satisfy. In whom there we find real contentment as the object and assurance of our hope for eternity and for the present. Let's pray now. Father God, the world is full of a great many things that vie for our attention, battle for our commitments and devotion, And many, many of them are good. And yet not all of them are most useful for pursuing undivided devotion to you. And so we ask that you help all of us, whatever our callings in life, whatever jobs that entails, and whatever marital status we presently have, that you would help us to think about the good things that you have built into the world in terms of how we can pursue undivided devotion to you by making use of these things. And so to that end, we pray for all here, married, single, for contentment. Contentment based in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we know that if we look to a specific status. We might rejoice in singleness and find find contentment in being free from those commitments. Help us to put that aside as well and find our contentment in Christ. We may long for committed relationships, for affection, companionship, to go through life together. But we pray that before we strive for that, that we strive for contentment in Christ so that even if we attain marriage, that companionship, we, we pray that we don't look to that person for contentment. We look to Jesus Christ that we might find contentment in Him so that we might be equipped to love that person best. And we pray that whatever our circumstances, that as the present distress weighs in various times and ways upon each of us throughout our lives, that we will remember the time is short. That Jesus Christ is coming back for us. That we are his beloved bride. And that whatever befalls us in this world, we have an eternity of being loved in store with him. We do pray these things in his precious name. Amen.